pray with me? Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we pray that we're able to see how it is that your plan has been laid out so well and will be accomplished all the way from creation to our being carried away by our Lord Jesus Christ to a place where we will dwell with him forever in glory. So, Father, I pray open our eyes, our hearts, our minds. Take away any resistance we may have to hearing and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 9, please. Joshua in chapter 1. Hear the word of God. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I suppose the first question is, why Joshua? know the answer, uh, because it's in the Bible. Um, more specifically, however, I know that when I make these choices, and I don't have to make them very often, it seems, of what to do next. But when I make these choices, I know it affects all of us for some time. I don't suspect I'll be in Joshua as long as I'm in some things, just because it's a, a narrative, and so there are some passages, such as the genealogies and dividing up the land, that or even difficult for me to figure out how to preach. Uh, but, um, but still, we'll be in here for some time, so I know it affects us. I know it affects us all. So as I began to think, uh, I certainly wanted to move into the Old Testament. We haven't done an Old Testament uh, book since uh, Leviticus, parts of Leviticus before uh, Hebrews. Uh, but I think it's important for us to, to go into the Old Testament because it so much sets up for us the new and as I mentioned at the end of Hebrews, as I began to, 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 as I finished Hebrews, that grace comes to us through God's word. Uh, grace comes to us through God's word. It isn't deserved by us, but God gives us gifts. And we noticed a number of graces that we received, or at least I received uh, through the book of Hebrews when we finished there. 
And now as we come to Joshua, the question really for us is what grace do we anticipate? What graces do we anticipate through uh, looking at Joshua? And we have a hint of that uh, from Paul in the book of Romans. Romans in chapter 15, in verse 4, the apostle writes this. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul is saying that what was written before, that is in the Old Covenant days, in the Old Testament, what was written then was written for our instruction. So we should learn something. There should be some instruction here. And then he goes on to say that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So I anticipate as we work our way through the book of Joshua that we will be encouraged. And we'll be so encouraged that it will give to us hope. Uh, hope for our own lives. You can only imagine, I suspect, that when the people in the Babylonian captivity, some hundreds, hundreds of years after Joshua happened, uh, and they were sitting in captivity, captivity, what would give them hope? But if they read Joshua, they would have hope because they would see that God was faithful to his promises, that God had promised something and God had delivered on those promises. And so while they were sitting in the midst of a time when it didn't look so much like God was faithful to his promises, they could read this and through it receive the grace of hope. I anticipate that in our context, uh, in our context as well. And the hope that we'll receive comes by way of history, comes by way of an historical narrative. Now, by that, I simply mean that as we read through Joshua, we're going to find historical stuff. We're going to find events happening in the life of ancient Israel, and it's recorded for us. But I want to be very careful to say that this will not be a character study of the person of Joshua. Now, Joshua is pretty important, obviously. It's named after him. I've been thumbing through here all morning trying to find a book of the Bible named Bill. Um, So I assume Joshua is pretty significant. You know, you got the whole deal named after him. That's significant. So he's a significant person. But yet, the question that we shouldn't be asking as we come here is, what does this tell me about Joshua? What does this tell me about his leadership style? What does this tell me about his life? Now, we're going to learn all that stuff. It'll just be apparent. But the real question is, you know this question, what does this tell me about God? That's what we're to learn here. That's why it's here. The hope that we have is not because Joshua was successful in something. Frankly, your success doesn't help me that much because I just look at my own life and think, I could never do that. I like a I could never do that. So what's going to give me hope? What's going to give me hope is to know something that's true about God in Joshua, something that's true about God in those days because that same God is in us and here now. And so it's that hope that we're after. So the question we're going to be asking all the time is, uh, what does this tell me about, about God, even in the midst of all of these events? Now, the way that Joshua is placed in Jewish tradition in the Old Testament is very helpful here, very instructive here. Uh, in Old Testament, in, in ancient Judaism, and even today, the Old Testament is divided up into three parts. The first part is called the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. The second part is called the prophets. The third part is called the writings. 
And the reason I mention that is that Joshua is placed in the prophets. Now, we would expect to find Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we do in that section of the Hebrew Old Testament. We would expect to find the minor prophets, and we do. We'd expect to find Daniel. We don't. That's another story. Uh, but here in this prophet section, we find Joshua judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. And that's a helpful reminder that what is happening here is that God is speaking to us. One author puts it like this. He says, the prophecy of Joshua means to convict, not merely to inform. To comfort, not simply to enlighten. The book of Joshua is preaching material beamed to Israel in the form of historical narrative. We need to see clearly that history in the Old Testament is declaration from God about God. So calling a prophecy in this Old Testament context, as the ancient Israelites did, is to help us to see that this, there's a message here. It isn't just facts and figures. It isn't just events taking place. It's all of that, and they're all true. But it's a history with an agenda. It's a history with a message. Not everything that happened during the days of Joshua is written here. Only that which was selected by God for us to have so that it would bring us hope. So this author goes on to say this. As you read and study Joshua, try to keep asking yourself the question, what is the writer preaching about when he tells me this story? He is not telling you the story only to inform you, although that's part of it. He has a message to proclaim, a God to press upon you. And so you see, as we read this history, as we read these facts, as we read these events, as we read about these people, the question we should be asking is, what's the message here from God? Why did he include this? Could have included other things. Why did he include this? What's the message that he has for us? And I think we'll see at least this. I think we'll see the message here being that God, the covenant God of Israel in those days, is faithful to his promises. And you may think, I knew that. Good, you're going to know it more. It's important for us to think upon these things. That God is faithful to everything that he promises. No matter what the scene looks like, no matter what the situation looks like, God is faithful to his promises. And so let's ask that question. What's these first nine verses? What's the message here from God? Well, the first thing we see is that Moses is dead. Now, that's huge. It may not seem like that big a deal to us, but that's huge. I mean, if you could put yourself in their lives to realize the only leader they knew was this guy named Moses, and he was awesome. I mean, Moses was their deliverer. And you know the story of Moses. His, his birth is miraculous in the sense that he was born at a time when it wasn't safe to be born. He was born at a time that when Hebrew boys were to be killed. Do you remember that his parents and faith in God hid him? When he was too big to hide anymore, they put him in a little basket and put him in a river. Uh, that's faith. I know there are many mothers here thinking, that's a good idea. But in those days, it was, it was faith. Uh, put him in the river. And he was found, you remember, by Pharaoh's daughter. And in God's ironic providence, Pharaoh's daughter then hired Moses' mom to nurse him and to raise him as a little boy. And so there he was being raised, this Hebrew child, raised in the palace of Egypt when Hebrew boys were supposed to have been killed 
God, by the way, smiles, I think, during times like that. So try to get around me, but you can't. I'm going to put my kid right in your palace. And there he was, Moses. A day came when he began to identify with his own people, with the Hebrew people. In fact, a Hebrew slave was being beaten, you remember, by an Egyptian. And so Moses killed that Egyptian. When that was found out, Moses fled Egypt, went for 40 years as a shepherd kind of a person. And then God one day meets Moses at a bush that was on fire, but not being consumed. And God speaks to Moses, you remember, and there's a negotiation that goes on. Moses doesn't really want to go back to Egypt, and he offers a number of excuses. God overcomes all of those because God is calling him, and God calls someone, he calls someone. And uh, you can't get out of it, so you could try, trust me, but it doesn't work. And so, so here I stand. So, uh, Moses then goes back to Egypt, and, and, and you know that account as well. Uh, you know that when he goes, that, that, uh, that the Pharaoh's reluctant to let the Israelites go, but Moses, by God's command, uh, issues various plagues that come, uh, and the last judgment is on the eldest son of the Egyptian families. And you know the Passover meal protects the Israelites? So at the end of that meal, they march out. They plunder, you remember, the Egyptians. They take all the wealth of Egypt. Uh, every Israelite is healed as they leave Egypt, as they leave that time of slavery. You remember they butt right up against the Red Sea. Uh, at that point, Pharaoh reconsiders his declaration to let them go. He sends his army after them. But while uh, the, the Israelites behind Moses uh, make it through because the waters part and the ground underneath the riverbed dries up, this is a tremendous miracle, um, they walk across, but Pharaoh's army then drowns in the middle of the sea as it returns. And then they come to Mount Sinai, you remember, and there God meets peop the people, and in the mountain rumbles and thunders, and, and there's, there's clouds and smoke and all of that because the presence of God is there. God gives to the people the law. It, it marks them out as his people. He gives them the way in which they can dwell in his midst, midst, though they be unholy and he is holy. He gives them a way where they won't die. A sacrifice will be taken for them so they can live in his very presence. They go then to this oasis at Kadesh Barnea, and it's at that point that Moses assigns one person from each tribe to go into the land that God has promised them to spy it out. They go to spy it out. And 10 of the 12 come back and say, there's no way we can get in there. The people are too big. The people are too strong. We'll be defeated if we go in there. There's two men, Caleb and Joshua, who come back and say, yes, we can because God is with us. God judges the people and says that nobody in this generation except for Caleb and Joshua can go into the land. And so they wander for 40 years. And now Moses is dead. I think somebody has to ask the question, what's going to happen now? I mean, that was 40 years ago we got this promise. Now what's going to happen? Are we really going to enter this land or aren't we? Moses is the only leader we knew. If Moses was here, we could trust that perhaps through him we'd get there. But, but, he, but he's dead. And the first thing we hear from God is he's saying to us, listen, my plan fulfilling my objectives isn't dependent on any one human being. Abraham died. Isaac died. Jacob died. Joseph died. Moses died. I think he whispers in Joshua's ear, you're going to die too. But my promises 
will be fulfilled. Don't put your hope in Moses. Don't put it in Abraham. Don't put it in Joshua. But God says, put it in me. My, my plan will be fulfilled. And so he calls Joshua then to be the next leader. Shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. He was Moses' assistant. Uh, he had been commissioned by Moses and by Eliezer the priest. If you turn to Numbers in chapter 27. Hang in there with me as I give you some background. You just need to know this stuff. Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. Scripture reads, The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim, before the Lord, at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eliezer the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and he commissioned him, as the Lord directed through Moses. So here we see, we understand that a person's calling isn't their own. It's from God. It wasn't Moses, it wasn't Eliezer. It was God who called Joshua to this point. And so now he does call him the assistant of Moses. Now Moses, now Joshua, no doubt, was well-trained. God would have put him through training in order to bring him to this place. You might remember it was Joshua who was commanded by Moses, thus by God, to go and build, take an army and fight the Amalekites very early on. Um, Exodus chapter 17. And... Joshua would no doubt would have learned a great lesson on that day. Because while he fought, Moses prayed. And when Moses would get tired praying, I like that. Moses got tired praying too. When Moses got tired praying, his arms would fall. And when his arms would fall, the Israelites would begin to lose. And when Moses was praying fervently, when his hands were raised, then the Israelites were winning. And so Aaron and her two priests that went with Moses up on the mountain to pray would prop up his arms with stones and other things so that the Israelites would win. And again, Joshua would say, Oh, it isn't me. I guess it's God. While the physical battle is taking place, there's a spiritual battle taking place. While the physical battle is taking place, it's God who's at work fighting this battle for us. And thus he would learn that. He saw God, Joshua did, in a sense on the mountain with all the thunder and all the lightning, and all the smoke, and all of that, and the rumblings at Sinai. And he knew that God had given his law to his people. He saw the disobedience of the people, and he realized that there's a great reaction of God against, rebelling against him. For the people had created a golden calf, and they named it the Lord. They put God's name on this calf, and it wasn't God. And Joshua would learn that we don't live idolatrously. We don't put the name of the Lord on anything other than the Lord. We don't follow anything other than the Lord because when we do, it erupts in the wrath of God. But God was gracious. The law was given. God, under the intercession of Moses, went with the people. And now Moses is dead. Joshua would have learned that Katie Sparnia, that he could live by faith. That even though the giants were big, 
that he could trust that God would conquer. But now Moses is dead. Joshua's the leader. Joshua's the man. But he understands that he's only the man because God has called him and God is at work in him. And so now we come. Notice the instructions that are given to Joshua. Verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan. Now that's not an easy thing. Because there was this river, the Jordan River, that was between them and the land they were to enter. They had no bridge, they had no boats, they had no way around it. And so just to say go through this Jordan, that's, that's, that, that's not an easy thing. It's like saying there's the Grand Canyon, jump. So it's not an easy thing. So I just, we'll come to that in a couple of weeks. But I just want you to take note that that's not an easy thing. You and all the people in the land I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I've promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. Saying, remember the land I promised to Abraham. Remember the land I promised to Isaac. Remember the land I promised to Jacob. Remember the land I promised to Moses. This land is now going to be given to you. And God gives it to them. By the time we get to Joshua chapter 21, verse 43, we'll read this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So it would come to pass. They would get the land, just as God had promised. God will fulfill all of his promises to them. But how's he going to do this? I mean, how's Joshua going to be able to lead this group of people through? Notice verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. First this, Joshua was going to be able to do this and to lead the people in this way only because God was with him. Now, that's not a trite thing to know that God is with you. You see, the end result for Joshua of knowing that God was with him is that he wouldn't be afraid and that he would have courage. But why not? See, if you really believe that God is with you, why be afraid? Why be discouraged? Why not have courage? You see, he'd realized that though the enemies were big, if God were with him, then still he would succeed. He didn't have anything to worry about. Even the circumstances, if they were dim and dark, if God was with him, the God who is sovereign over all circumstances, the God who is all-wise, the God who is all-powerful, the God who loves him, if that God is with him, then why should he be anxious? Why should he be afraid? 
Why wouldn't he have courage? If the calling that God had given him is so great that it would otherwise make you afraid, make you afraid to follow after God in that calling, why would not the words, I'm with you, take away that fear? Because even though his calling was great, he knew that God was with him, and if God was with him, then surely God would be gracious to fulfill all of his promises to Joshua. It's important for us to understand that this promise is not only for Joshua, it's for all of us. In fact, the thing that distinguishes the people of God from everyone else on the face of the earth is that God is with us. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 7. Let me start with verse 5, because I want to use this passage later, and I might forget it. So if I forget it, at least I've put it in here, and you can go back and check it later. Verse 5. See that I have taught, see I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Uh, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Verse 7, this is what I'm after now. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? See, the point is this. There isn't any other nation, there isn't any other people like this who the true and living God is this close to, so close to, that he hears us. I mean, even if we whisper, he hears us. Even if we think the thought, he hears us. Because he's that close to us. God is that close to us. Uh, Last week, Dan was preaching about the presence of God. Surely God is present everywhere. But in this special sense, he's present with his people. That distinguishes us. There's no no one else like that. Uh, That's why it isn't surprising that when Jesus came, they called him Emmanuel. God with us. Because, you see, the very one who's going to come to save his people from their sins, his people, is going to be the very one who is with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why it's no surprise that before Jesus ascended, after he gave us this great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and all of that, he says, don't worry, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why it isn't surprising that before he was crucified... He told his disciples about what was to come. And he says this to them, John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. How close is God to us? As his people, his very presence the very presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in us. That close. You can't get any closer than that. In is close. Right? Um, Is that close to us? And so this is to take away even our fear. When we finished Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, near the end of this message, The author of Hebrews writes, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, men can do a lot of stuff to us. They can embarrass us. They can insult us. They can kill us. But you get the impression that none of that's all that important to the author of Hebrews. He wants us to answer nothing. Well, why not? Because God is for us. And as the apostle says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, what difference does it make if somebody else is against us? Because God is for us. How many times a day do you say to yourself, God is with me? If it's not very often, you need to set your phone alarm for every three minutes to go off to remind you of the fact that God is with you. I say that to myself because I'm a pretty shy, quiet, scared sort of person. I say God is with me, I bet, a lot. I don't want to exaggerate and say a million times, but it's a lot. Uh, You know, I'm saying it to myself all the time. First, because it's just amazing to me. And second, because I need it. Because I would be too afraid and lack the courage to do anything. But over and over again to remind myself, oh, God is with me. Is there an enemy out there that looks big on the horizon? God is with me. That's all right. God is with me. Is, is, is the circumstance overwhelming to me? God is with me. You see. Is the calling that God has for you at this particular moment in your life, whether it's a calling to be a student or calling to be a businessman or calling to be a professor, calling to be a plumber, calling to be a pastor, calling to undergo um, therapy for illness, whatever your calling is at this moment of time, does it seem overwhelming? What do you say to yourself? God is with me. God is with me. And that's to take away courage. As we begin this new academic year, as students go to school, whether you're a, a preschooler or a kindergartner or a third grader or a seventh grader or a tenth grader, or a, a freshman in college, an eight-year senior, whatever, you know, whatever your, your deal is, you should be saying to yourself as this, this year begins, God is with me. He's the one who's laid this out. He's the one who'll help me at every step along the way. If I get a professor I don't like, I have to remember God is with me. If I get a teacher that I don't like, God is with me. If I'm in, in class with, with, with other students that I don't know or my best friend's not here or any of that, I have to be saying, but, but, but God is here. God is with me. And thus, I don't need to be afraid. Thus, I can have courage. In the midst of a relationship that, that's overwhelming to you and you don't see any way that this relationship can be reconciled, what do you say to yourself? Do you say, well, I'm alone, I'm stuck, this is the bet? No, not a believer, not someone who's been called by God to be his. You say, God is with me. Joshua knew that. And so as I look at what Joshua has to do, I mean, he's got to cross this Jordan River. He's got to go into this land that's occupied by big people and strong armies and all of that and giants in the land, uh, prosperous people, people that don't want to give him that land. And he's going to take it with a group of people that have not proven themselves to be all that great. The only thing that could get him to do that and certainly make him successful is the very fact that God is with him. And you say, but I can't see God. I can't feel God. I can't hear God. And I understand that. But we've been given it in his word that he is with us. By faith, we believe it. And then we live our life on the lookout. When the kids were little, we used to, certain points in our family life, uh, I used to do with them what I called God watches. 
And I'd say, where'd you see God today? Where'd you see God today? In the midst of, of your day, in the ordinary kinds of things. And I would say, well, did you read your Bible today? And, and yeah. Well, who do you think got you to do that? Mom? No. <laughs> You're reading the Bible. That's a good thing. God is at work in your life. Were you patient today at any point in time? Were you kind at any point in time? Was someone kind to you? Did you receive help? How did your life go? That's all God involved in your life. Don't just pass that by as just normal living. There isn't anything such thing as normal living to a believer in Christ. It's all God occupied. It's all God informed. So look for him in all those little places, all those little ordinary normal kinds of things. And most especially, do you trust him? Who do you think is responsible for that? It's only him. So God would be with Joshua. Next, this. God says to Joshua to give him instruction about, about how he's going to be with him and how he's going to be able to occupy this land and take it over. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous and careful to do all this law. Verse 8, he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do um, according to all that is written in it. He says, listen, the way that you're going to accomplish this is to take the book of the law and meditate on it day and night. Now remember, Joshua was a busy guy. He wasn't a monk in a monastery. He was busy. He was the leader of all these people. He didn't have a computer to keep track of everybody. He didn't have all the kinds of things that, you know, make life easy. He didn't have a dishwasher. You know, he was a busy guy. And still the word to him was, I want you to think about this book of the law all the time. So that would have meant he needed to be reading it. That would have mean, mean that it was to inform his thinking. Now that little word meditates a word that we get from our word ruminate which is a word that's used to describe cows chewing their cud. Cows have an interesting way of revisiting their food. <laughs> you know, first time through, decent, but they get a second time through. We call that acid reflux, but to a cow, that's... And so you see, that's what he's saying to Joshua. Yes, you've taken it in, but revisit it. You've taken it in, but revisit it. This should be on your mind all the time. Just because you thought it once doesn't mean you're over with it. It means you need to have this in the forefront of your mind, this book of the law, all the time. And then it needs to inform, then, the things that you say. And it wasn't that Joshua was just running around superstitiously quoting the Bible, quoting the book of the law, and saying, well, if I say this, then it'll be magic. No, it wasn't that at all. But he was so well-versed, no pun intended, in this book of the law, he knew it so well that it informed everything that he said. When he made a comment, it was being informed by the truth of God. And then he says, you're to do it. So you're to think upon it over and over. You're to speak it, and you're to be careful to do it. It's a very interesting little word there. Be careful to do it. Take great care in your life to make certain that you're doing that which God says. And then he says to Joshua, if you do this, you'll have good success. Now, good success uh, to Joshua was that he would conquer the land. But in, in my Bible, the version I read, the English Standard Version, which is 
the one I like right now. There's a marginal note with an alternative translation to that expression, good success. And the marginal note, the alternative translation is this, may act wisely. So we could translate this, verse 8, like this, or verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may act wisely. Now, why is it act wisely in one situation and good success in the other? What's the relationship between the two? Translations and art, not a science. Well, the relationship is this, that if you follow the word of God, you will become wise. That's what the word of God does for us. It causes us to become wise. The psalmist writes, it makes us wiser than our enemies. It makes us wiser, the word of God, even than our elders than the ages, because it's the Word of God. And when we talk about the Word of God in Joshua's context, we're talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy. We're talking about the Pentateuch, that Torah. And we're not talking about simply the do's and don'ts in that, but we're talking about the whole breadth of it. Joshua would meditate upon the fact that God who is with him is the creator of all that is. He would meditate upon the fact that God who is with him is the very one who has said that rebelling against him results in death. But he's also the very God who made a promise that one would come from the seed of the woman and kill and crush the head of the serpent. He's also the one that made a covenant with Abraham that said that this land is yours. And who also said that all the families of the earth will be blessed through this family of Abraham. And he's also the one who said if you have the very faith of Abraham, just like Abraham, your faith will be counted as righteousness. And so you'll be justified by faith. This very God who gave them the law and said that I am holy. But also this very God that says, here, take this lamb and kill it rather than yourself because I am gracious. And so all of this knowledge of God would be true in Joshua's life. And it would be that wisdom that would inform his speech and his actions. And that's the very wisdom, you see, that's to inform our lives as well. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 12. I'm almost done, by the way, for you college students who went home to 20-minute sermons. I know you need to get back in shape. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, he's saying, listen, as your, as your mind is transformed by the word of God, you'll become wise. And in becoming wise, you'll be able to discern what is pleasing to God. And you'll know that it's pleasing to God because you'll know him and you'll know what pleases him. And so you see, for Joshua, it was go back, meditate upon this word, have it inform your speech, have it inform your actions, and then you'll be successful, meaning you'll act wisely. For Joshua, it meant that he'll make good military decisions in listening to God and how he's to do battle. For us, it's the same kind of thing. We'll make good decisions in the context of our lives and following after God and living in a way that's, that's pleasing to him. We will live wisely. Now, it's important to note 
that we may be the only people who think we're living wisely. Because this wisdom says that if we're being aggravated by someone else, we should be patient. This wisdom says that if someone hurts us, we should forgive them. This wisdom says that if someone's in need and we're in need, we should still give to them. And the world's going to look upon us and go, that's crazy. And we're going to say, I'm living successfully. You see, This wisdom says when there are people who don't know about Jesus, we should tell them, even if it gets us in trouble. This wisdom says that we see people in need, even though we don't know them, we should help them. And nobody else thinks that way. That's the good success that God promises to us as living as his people. My excitement, my anticipation, is that as we work our way through this word of God, as we meditate upon this book, Joshua, that God will make us wise and that God will give us hope. And at the end of the day, We'll be living in such a way that's pleasing to him. And we'll be living as a group of people filled with hope, knowing that God really is faithful to fulfill all that he promises to us. That's of great value. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, uh, that you'd be with us uh, today, this week. And most especially, I pray in this undertaking of Joshua that you would reveal to us the message that you're preaching to us through all these events in history. They wouldn't just be words on a page or numbers or historical events, but Father, we would hear you, see you in the midst of all of them. Speak to us, we pray, that we might be wise. We might have good success as you define success. And we might have hope. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.